0: If you are looking for some secret ninja mind hack tricks from a Navy SEAL, we have a great show for you today. It's Alden Mills. He is the author of Unstoppable Teams and the book Be Unstoppable. This guy is massively impressive and brings to us ideas about mindset as it relates to leadership, self-leadership, team leadership, and exploding growth through using these techniques, tools, and tactics to get massive breakthroughs amongst teams hope you enjoy it what i really needed was to recreate myself which means to bring something new into the world that has never existed before hey everyone today we have alden mills he is the author of unstoppable teams four essential actions of high performance leadership he's also the uh, author of Be Unstoppable, and he is a Fortune 500 speaker, United States Naval Academy graduate, former Navy SEAL, and powerhouse entrepreneur. So I wanted to welcome you to the show, Alden.
1: It's an honor to be here. Thank you for having me, Terrence.
0: It's an honor to have you here, and thank you for your service. And what I want to do today is just walk through... The, the three types of leadership that you have in the unstoppable and then teams learn a little bit about connecting the dots. You and I are both Massachusetts boys. You grew up in Southbridge, Massachusetts, uh, and then went on, on to Kent School and off to the Academy. But I'd love to hear a little bit of backstory because everybody always asks like, tell us you know, how you became, um, how you grew up and how you uh, brought, brought yourself through your military service and onto the, uh, the business world.
1: Happy to. Um- you know, and let's just bring it back to Massachusetts and tell everybody about what I would consider one of my first real important leadership conversations. It was when I was twelve, and I had been bedridden for about forty days. The doctors thought I had spinal meningitis, and I was sent to the big city of Wista, Massachusetts.
0: <laughs> oh yeah,
1: uh, for all you folks out there, which was really not that big of a city, but Terrence knows what we're talking about here. And I got sent to this lung doctor, this pulmonologist. And when I, was, when I was brought into his office, it was more like a laboratory with all these different machines to blow in and inhale, exhale into. And he was walking around having me do these things and charting my performance. And after a few minutes, this guy, he looked like an old Danny DeVito with white wispy hair, right? Bald on the top a thick Coke bottle glasses and a nasally Boston accent. And he says, ah, I, I see what the problem is here, Mrs. Mouse. Why don't you come over here to my desk? Brings my mom over. Of course, he's not talking to me. He's talking to my mom, right? And he's got this chart. And he goes, ah, you see this right here? Your son is born then uh, smaller than average set of lungs. You see, he's way below the line right here. And then he flips the chart over and he says, and uh, you see this line, this is an airway line. He's way below over here. That's because he's got asthma. You see, he's got smaller than normal lungs and he's asthmatic. So I got two things for him. Uh, Number one, he needs to lead a less active lifestyle. And I... I'm going to give him some medicine. And, I, you know, I suggest he learn the game of chess. And I said, mm. boom. I was an active little kid, right? My head right. dropped to my chin. My mom goes, why don't you go wait in the lobby? She finishes up with a doc. and By that point, I'm having a full pity party for myself, right? Mm. She comes out in that offensive mom position with her hands on her hips. And she kicks my foot and says, what's wrong with you? And I look up at her, right, huge tears on my cheeks. And I said, Mom, chess, how am I gonna learn chess? I'm terrible at checkers, (laughs) right? And she had these long, sharp fingernails. They were for moments like this. She drops down onto a knee, digs these like velociraptor-like claws right into my forearm. And she says, now you listen to me. Nobody defines what you can or can't do, but you, I'll get you that medicine, but you have to decide what you're going to do. You hear me? I didn't get it that day, right? I didn't get it that week. Mm. Mom and dad were so consistent, you know, and I'd come back from trying out for a sport and she'd be like, so what if you scored on your own team in basketball, go try another sport. Right. And. And that is kind of the defining moment for me as a 12 year old, because that, that sent me on a course to keep trying, to keep trying different things, right? To learning how to lead myself through all kinds of different challenges, which I consider the first level of leadership. And I think of that as a, getting an unstoppable mindset. And then once you've got that, then you've got to decide, okay, well, who's gonna help you get there, right? And that's the second level, and that's building out a team. And that's a very important dynamic, but its fundamentals are based on how you lead yourself. And then finally, the third level is then extrapolating a team of teams, which is creating an atmosphere of an unstoppable culture. And that is essentially how I put together unstoppable uh, teams and being unstoppable being unstoppable was really all about leading yourself and then unstoppable teams was extrapolating that with a small conversation about leading yourself into building and leading unstoppable teams
0: so you end up going to annapolis which is not very difficult to do very few people you get a military appointment from a congressman or a senator i imagine Tell us I about, did. you know, how that went on to, to, to uh, your, your active duty and then into, into SEAL.
1: Well, you know, it was really a series of cascading events. You heard me kind of joke around about uh, scoring against my own team in basketball, which I did do, ran right off the court in my uh, YBA program and YMCA, which is all I had in uh, Massachusetts. And then uh, I ended up finding a sport that worked for me. And that was sitting on my butt going backwards for long periods of time. That was Mm. the sport of rowing. And rowing took me to the Naval Academy. And then from there, uh, I had the opportunity to try out for the 92 Olympic team. And then I had another decision to make. I had been invited to the Olympic camp and the Navy said, hey, we'll support you to go there, but you got to give up your your spot to go to SEAL training and I decided to give up the Olympic camp, and I went mm. to SEAL training. Had all kinds of trials and tribulations there, and then graduated from SEAL training, went on to be a three-time Navy SEAL platoon commander before I left to go off to business school.
0: Mm. What year, how many years were with, with the seal? the SEALs?
1: A total of 12. I did seven, a little over seven active, and then another five reserve.
0: Awesome. And you, then you go into corporate America and you, you know, I, was, I was sensitive. I heard you, I heard one of your Google talks. You talk about your, 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 lonely days of bankruptcy and trying to build a product that didn't quite work out well for you. And then on to, you know, the, your business, visit about that. And then we'll get it. We'll dive into the book. So,
1: yeah, you, you talk about the, uh, bankruptcy situations, you know, I raised a million and a half dollars from 37 of my closest friends and family and then learned $1,475,000 of ways not to launch a product. I'd created the world's greatest fat burning device that nobody cared about. Uh, and, you know, I had that was a huge defining moment. And I was pulled aside by... A couple of investors, they, I mean, they cared about me and they wanted to keep me safe, much like that doctor did in Massachusetts. And they said, Hey, Alden, let me show you some charts. I'm like, Oh, here we go again, right? Mm-hmm. Except these charts were cash flow charts. And they were saying, You know, you don't have any money to pay back the lawyers, the manufacturers, the accountants. You're bankrupt. It's over. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to see the new idea. They're like, it's done. And that was a defining moment where I had to make a decision if I'm going to just follow their advice and declare bankruptcy and go get a job, or can I give it one more shot? One more shot at something. Now that I looked at it as, well, hey, wait a minute, I got $1,475,000 worth of education on what not works let's go mm-hmm. try this the other way oh, Awesome. and that launched perfect push-up and then the perfect push-up you know we became the fourth fastest growing company consumer products company in the country
0: mm. I have enough time doing the regular I don't know if it's perfect but <laughs> I know it's, they're always trying to get six more out of me I um, Awesome. So talk, well, talk about a little bit about your um, you know, ideas that you got out of being unstoppable and the unstoppable mindset and how that rolls into unstoppable teams, the, the principles.
1: So the key principles to understand about unstoppable mindset is there are very few things we can control, mm-hmm. but the things that we can control can lead us to whatever success we seek. Those three things, are leading the conversation inside our head, which are our thoughts. And then there's a competing set of thoughts in unstoppable teams. I call that the conversation between the whisperer and the whiner. Then there is dealing with our focus and how we tighten up our focus funnel and not allow the focus funnel to get a series of holes in it that dissipate our energy and leave us to take less than a fully committed action. And then finally there are limiting beliefs and we all have them. We have them all the time, all kinds of different ones. And we have this belief loop and it's up to us to decide which ones we're going to pick to be limiting and which ones we're going to pick to help us push forward. And those three things I call the mindset map. They're all entangled. They all play upon each other and how you start to navigate the mindset map is how you can help make a difference in your day-to-day striving for success.
0: You see a lot of leaders that, that are in lead, in the lead, but they don't necessarily have the, that, you know, they don't, they don't live it. They're not, they're not a, uh, you know, managing themselves. I mean, you see people that are, that are put in charge. What, what makes the great leader versus the many that try, you know, based upon what you've learned over your lifetime.
1: That's a great question. There are, there are a handful of things that I would say make a great leader. The number, and I'm just going to list off a series of them. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: One, is being authentic, is being mm-hmm. authentic, is the connection between your head and your heart, you're in alignment together, and people know who you are at any given time, there's no facade, mm-hmm. you are who you are, whether you're an introvert, extrovert, or anything in between, but being authentic is really important because you need authenticity, along with vulnerability, transparency, all those things, mm-hmm those come to helping you build trust. If you cannot build trust, which means you have to have the ability to connect with other people, you will be limited in your ability to bring a group of individuals together. And that authenticity must be consistent where you're able to connect with all kinds of different personalities your ability to connect with different types of personalities will is dramatically correlated with the diversity of the team that you can build. Now, mm-hmm. why is diversity so important? The diversity that I'm referring to is the diversity of thought. That's what we're after. Now, diversity of thought is being extrapolated to say, well, People from different cultures have different ways of thinking, which is accurate, right? So the more you're able to be authentic with yourself, let the ego not get in the way and know that, hey, I'm only good at probably one or two things. And I know all these other things, which brings me to self-awareness that I'm terrible at. And I need to find these other people that are super great at what I'm not great at. And that self-awareness then drives you to self-assessment and if you're a leader that continually self-assess you know what did i do well there what did i do poorly there how can i continually improve and brings you to continual learning and if you incorporate all of those pieces you will be able to build trust set a direction that people will be inspired to go after create contribution is Mm -hmm. critical and most importantly then empower people to take ownership and make decisions with the commander's intent in mind of what is good for the team
0: if you're a leader and you have that vision you know you have the you know you're authentic and you're and you're putting yourself out there and you're, you're, you're real about yourself, what you're good at, your unique abilities are shining through and you're managing uh, others to, to join you. How do you put that team together? Like, some people are great performers, but they're not necessarily, they struggle assembling teams and then keeping them together. I think that's a topic people love to, you know, recruiting to the team.
1: There is a continuum in leadership. And the continuum on one side is selfishness. Continuum on the other side is selflessness, Mm -hmm. right? When we start off, a leader's gotta be able to assess, hey, who's in it for themselves? And who's in it for the overall good of the team? And when you begin that journey, of taking people from selfishness to selflessness, Mm -hmm. you first have to start with taking care of people's safety, whether it's Mm -hmm. physical safety, emotional safety, mental safety, and letting them know the context behind why we need to go over to the point of selflessness. The mere fact of the matter is no one person can do it all. We are built to work together. There is no such thing as one Superman or Superwoman, and we can only do so much by ourselves. But if you are stringing together a vision that says, look what we could do together and the positive impact it will make with others through service, Mm-hmm. then we can move that continuum to a point where everybody is working selflessly together. But that requires understanding the context behind why is it worth it to work so hard and, and what is the kind of progress that we can make and how can we track that? Mm-hmm. There are some people, by the way, that will never be good team players They're like, you know what? It's me, myself, and I, and it's the only way I like to be. Mm. They probably have a lot of different things that have grown up in their life that have decided I'm a Rambo and I'm only going to be that way. And if, you know, you can bring people to water, so to speak, but you can't make them drink. But the way you get them to drink is get them to understand the context of why the vision is important who it impacts, and how will that make you feel? Hmm.
0: That's tough. I I had a big company, and I journeyed off to the solopreneur world thinking I I wanted less hassles. This is lonely. (laughs) You're used to being around a lot of of people, so I kind of got myself into things to bring bring back a little more familiarity. Um, That's a really interesting point. Like, you know, having that that uh, something bigger. And it's always difficult to manage, you know, people that want to be paid well. I mean, either with cash or intrinsic rewards versus they're there to do good job, too. That's a really interesting balance. Um,
1: you know, at the end of the day, Terrence, we all have an, an intrinsic drive to be valued. Mm-hmm. Right, even those that have become, or were, or are insecure for whatever reason. By the way, we all have insecurities. Mm-hmm. We all have these battles with our ego. We all fight fear. We all deal with doubt. These are all normal human things. There are weaknesses. There are mm-hmm. chinks in the arm. and the more that the leader can essentially strip away his or her armor to say, look, I have all these issues too, but I know together, if we link arms, we can do something that will bring incredible value to others and to ourselves. And when you can get people aligned to understand the value, that they bring to others and how great it makes them feel because they were a part of that, then you've got something greater than a group.
0: Now we're getting
1: into a team. Yeah. When nobody's caring about who gets the credit because they know everybody's back is being taken care of and they're only looking forward. That's the big challenge is that when you have a bunch of folks that originally join a team, the first question they all ask themselves, what's in it for me? You know, what about me? And the leader's got to be the one that says very consistently and proves it with action. Hey, I've got your back. I'm going to take care of those things that are important to you safety-wise, right? Mm -hmm. You create the structure of consistency, like I got your back financially or I got your back from a health perspective, you know, whatever those issues are, then you can move them to the continuum of serving others because now they're looking forward. They're not worried about their own backs. That's Mm -hmm. the leader's job. I'm worrying about your backs So you guys can stay front side focused on what we need to get done.
0: Tell me a little bit. It's one of my favorite topics. I heard, I heard a, a general explain this concept at a Jay Abraham seminar. You probably know Jay from your travels as a speaker. And he talks about force multiplier, the concept of a force multiplier. And I think you call it your 10 X at the very end of the book, the last chapter, I think it's mm-hmm. about you know implementing your, you know, taking that team bump for a ride. Tell me about that concept. That's probably, uh, you know, when one and one equals 11, let I say, it's like, how do you make that, that that breakthrough that breakaway
1: so the force multiplying effect first means you've moved the continuum from being selfish right mm-hmm. if somebody is only worried about throwing backs they're really just going to put out enough effort to take care of themselves that is not a force multiplying effect the force multiplying effect comes into your account when everybody is focused on serving a greater good a greater mission, a vision, whatever that is, right? That's part one. But where the force multiplying effect gets ignited or activated is when people realize that the team they're on is only as good as four different constituents that support the team. Those four constituents are your customers, Your coworkers, they may not be on your direct team, but those coworkers work, directly impacts your team's performance. Your contributors, you know, in the world of fitness products and manufacturing overseas, my contributors are my manufacturers, my sales reps, different vendors and shipping and supplying, right? The moment they start to feel like part of your team, the more focused they're gonna be to make sure that you succeed. And then finally, the communities in which you operate in. If you bring those four constituents in, then you have that dramatic force multiplying effect. I used an example in Unstoppable Teams about the force multiplying effect on the battlefield and how ODA Team 555, which was one of the first Special Forces groups to land in Afghanistan, how a little group of 10 people was able to put a coalition together to take on a force multiplying effect of 50,000 people. Now, granted, they had some other force multipliers called the Air Force and the Marine Corps and Navy, but they were the pointy end of the spear, and they were doing it through building out relationships based on trust where they could bring a whole bunch of Northern alliances together to take on a 50,000 Taliban. At the end of the day, it always comes down to expanding what you think your team is to get everybody on the same page of why the mission is important. Mm -hmm. Who does an impact and how does it make you feel?
0: Mm. Fantastic. Tell me, um, that's that's really the, the uh, force multiplier is always like, how can so few do so much? And there's interpersonal skills there. I thought it was just good weaponry, good training, and good good uh, intelligence, but it was interpersonal trust, um, leadership. Talk about.
1: Yeah, Derek, um, I sometimes tell this story about. A gentleman named Michael Monsor. And, and I'm gonna abbreviate the story, but Michael Monsor jumps on a grenade. He jumps on a grenade to save not just a couple of Navy SEAL snipers, but also a handful of Iraqi special forces. Now, why does Michael jump on a grenade to do that? Why does anybody jump on a grenade? Is it Is it because we have a standard operating procedure in the U.S. military that says closest as the grenade gets it? Is it because he scored an A on the jump on the grenade drill that we do to our basic training? No, no, we don't do any of that kind of crap, right? Oh, I know. It's because we all can't wait to die for our country. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: No, no, he jumped on that grenade because he was fully connected with force-multiplying effect. And you know what the irony of the force-multiplying effect is? It's love. He loved his teammates so much, loved the idea of what SEAL team means and where it goes that the idea of letting down his teammates, his team, the team ethos was literally worse than dying. Now, Michael's not alone. You pick out any Medal of Honor recipient out there, and you'll see them going way above and beyond the Call of Duty. And they say, you know, I was just doing it because I didn't want it, I didn't want my teammates to die. And my acronym in the book is care and care is the baseline of what it takes to unite a group of individuals and turn them into a team but what you will find over time is what i call care squared and care squared develops into love
0: Hmm. that's powerful funny how—not uh, funny, but it's—it's it's unusual when you see someone like that acting out of love. Well change uh, gears for a second. Uh, tell me a little bit about your hardest day. P.S. and post S. You know, since, since since before we before you left the seals and since what's your hardest day? First one is while you're at seals or before.
1: My hardest day in the SEAL team training, there are two, they're tied. One was during Hell Week. Hell Week is this six-day period. You know, they keep you up from Sunday to Friday and give you a total of about three hours of sleep. And at the third night, Tuesday night, they pulled me aside and my class had dwindled from 34 to 18 and I'm the last officer, and the only officer. And they said, "Uh sir, it's time for you to quit." <laughs> and I kind of laughed like, "Okay, yeah, whatever." And I said, "No, no, no. We're serious. Dude, look around you. Your your class is so small now. We're we're probably just going to shut this down. We'll just roll them into another class. It doesn't make sense financially to keep this class going. Do you know why they're all quitting? I hadn't even thought about it. It's because of you, sir. You're a terrible leader. That's why they're all quitting. And, sir, I just want to ask you, how do you think you're going to lead in SEAL team if you can't even lead your class through hell week? You're going to kill people. They're all going to quit on you, it's over. So go ahead, go ring this bell over here and you can call it a day. You know, you've been up for 48 hours. You're like, oh man, they're talking some basic logic. I don't know, I was like, oh my gosh. They almost had me right there. And then the other one was halfway through uh, second phase My lungs started filling up with blood and I had a lung infection and they had also figured out that I had been cheating and taking some asthma medication on the side. And that asthma medication ended up um, popping me positive for having an antigen in my system. They pulled me out of training. Uh, They tried to kick me out. I was able to pass some tests, but then I had to redo a whole portion of training, which Mm. was hard. Mm. You don't want to go backwards one day, let alone six weeks, seven weeks. Mm. And then the hardest thing um, after SEALs would be my wife. Is pregnant with our third son, third child. She's got a one in her arms. They're all two years apart. So she has like a one-year-old and a three-year-old. And we've run out of money. She is tears in her eyes. And she comes to me and she says, I, I can't do this anymore. We, you know, and I've been, now I've been going at this for five years. Right. Mm-hmm. We're just scraping by and selling every worldly possession that I owned. And, uh, she said, you got to give me a Verizon here because this is, this is, we got to call this. And I just remember, like, oh, I did, I had, she. I just view her as such a tough, powerful, independent woman. And when she showed me that, a tender side, I was like, oh my God, it ripped my heart out. And I said, okay, six months. How about that? Six months, give a very specific date. I hadn't, I hadn't done that before. And I said, if I can't prove within six months, then. We're calling it, I'll go get a job. We'll go move, do whatever we have to do.
0: So close to quitting and didn't.
1: Yeah. You know, they say darkest before dawn.
0: Right. The big lessons are there. Who do you use for mentors in your life?
1: I, I look for a mentor, or a new mentor every year. Mm -hmm. And the mentor slash coach most recently I've been using JD messenger as my mentor. He is 10 years, my senior graduate of the Naval Academy. He's a former uh, president of Ernst and Young of Asia, worked Mm -hmm. at Exxon, did the uh, Valdez oil cleanup. And ironically he's a submariner where I'm a seal and you couldn't get more polar opposite personalities in the military. Uh, and he's, he's been a wonderful mentor and coach to me.
0: Oh, that's great. Just had one, one more quick question or, uh, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to share. Um, tell us about your new program. I'm excited to, to share that with my audience about people that want to install these, these algorithms, these formulas in their lives and bring So that to I have a, great a new. Team.
1: Thank you for asking. I have a new uh, in my first ever online class called Unstoppable Mindset launches this week. Uh, you can find it at unstoppablemindset.com, and it's four hours of self-paced video instruction that covers nine parts of dealing with the mindset horizon, the mindset map, the mindset fundamentals, how we put them all together. Comes with a 60-page workbook, a series of checklists, and depending on which webinar you join up, you can even get what I call these power meditations to help you deal with confidence, fear, and different types of beliefs.
0: Mm. Mm, Powerful. The mind. How much is mindset as a percentage of overall success?
1: To me, it's everything. If your mind isn't right, you can forget about it.
0: Right.
1: And I've seen people with a lot less physical capabilities soar through SEAL training. And then I've seen people who have been in the top 10 of the Ironman fail within minutes. (laughs) And at the end of the day, what matters most is mindset. Mindset is that navigator that helps you continue to push through when everyone else has given up.
0: You've had some great lessons and you're teaching great lessons. You're doing great things through writing, through your speech. I can't wait to get the the information about this course. I'm going to leave it in the notes. Um, I want to thank you for sharing your story and your books and your knowledge with us today.
1: Hey, I wanna thank you for what you're doing with everybody else out there. Your story is equally phenomenal and you're an inspiration, Terrence. So thank you for going out there and helping people understand that they can do more than they originally thought was possible.
0: Thank you for saying that.
1: Heartfelt, why I'm here.
0: We have all the mills, thanks.